and our last speaker of the morning or the day before we move on to our roundtable discussion will be Teresa Ebring. She is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Weill Cornell College of Medicine. Her research focus has been on the pathogenesis of HIV-1-associated neurocognitive disorders, the identification and characterization of novel therapeutics to combat deleterious effects of HIV in the central nervous system, and the phylodynamics of HIV in the central nervous system. And she has used that talent related to neurocognitive dysfunction to um, start elucidating some of this in people who have post-acute COVID syndrome um, following recovery from COVID-19. And she's going to talk to us now about post-COVID complications. Teresa? Thank you so much for that kind introduction. And let me share my screen. and bring up my presentation, which I hope you can all see. Can you all see that? Yes, we can, Dr. Okay, Please great. All right, so thank you so much for inviting me to give this talk on post-COVID complications. And here are my um, disclosures. You can see them here. So today, after attending this presentation, the hope is that you'll be able to do a couple of things. Define post-COVID complications, describe the prevalence as we understand it today and symptoms of post-COVID complications, describe some hypothesized pathogenesis uh, factors and risk factors for post-COVID complications, and apply some prevention methods for and a rational clinical approach to the patient with post-COVID complications. So post-COVID complications is really an umbrella term, right, for a wide range of physical and mental health consequences experienced by some patients after SARS-CoV-2 infection. And you all are probably familiar with at least some of these terms that have been used to describe post-COVID complications. Long COVID, which is a term that I'll be using throughout this talk for continuity, but you've probably also heard of post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, particularly in the literature, chronic COVID, etc. So how do we define long COVID? And this is really important for us to be able to define the illness that we're trying to study. Well, it depends on where you look for your definition. Um, the CDC has a definition of long COVID that includes a history of SARS-CoV-2 infection, symptoms and clinical findings at least four weeks after the initial infection. Importantly, they lay out that symptoms may be new, recurring or ongoing from the time of initial illness with COVID-19. And they can occur in patients who've had varying degrees of an illness during an acute infection. And this can be mild or it can be asymptomatic, which is important to understand. The World Health Organization also has um, a slightly more comprehensive definition of long COVID um, that includes a history of probable or confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection usually three months, so the time frame a little different here from the CDC, from the onset of COVID-19, and symptoms that last at least two months and cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis. So there's a little bit more um, 
uh, granularity here in that diagnosis. Symptoms may be new or persist from initial illness, so we've heard that before, and they may fluctuate or relapse over time and generally have an impact on everyday functioning. And there are separate definitions that may be applicable um, for children. Today, we're gonna be talking about adults. Another topic that is of great importance to all of us is understanding the prevalence of long COVID. How often does this happen? And I'll be focusing on US data. Of course, we understand that this is a global pandemic, um, but I'm focusing here on US data, particularly looking at what the CDC has put forth in terms of prevalence. You may have heard numbers going anywhere from 10% to 30% or higher, or maybe even a little bit lower. If you look at the CDC website, based on an analysis of a Cerner Electronic Health Record Network database with a retrospective matched cohort design, they estimate that approximately one in five adults um, have long COVID. And that's in adults aged 18 to about 64. Actually, if you look at the website, if they look at individuals greater than 65, the estimate comes down to one in four adults. Um, this is an electronic health records database. The benefit there is that you have large numbers of patients to look at, and they looked at follow-up anywhere from 30 days, approximately four weeks, to about a year after the index encounter. But what we really also want to get to when we're talking about different prevalence numbers is what is the scope of this of this issue. And the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation has a useful dashboard that can kind of help us put at least the US issues in context. Um, they have this dashboard of cumulative and daily cases. And what you're looking at in the green line is COVID-19 surviving cases um, over time. And then in red, the estimated past cases. And that estimate is based on a model that assumes a 30% of individuals who survive COVID-19 illness go on to develop some degree of PASC. And when you look at these numbers, they're really staggering. And it really just brings home the importance and the, the magnitude of the issue and what this will what this means for our public health systems and, and all of that. So it's really very, very daunting. Here is a list of select publications highlighting um, long COVID prevalence. And the reason I put this up here is not because I wanna go through each one of these papers, it's really to highlight the heterogeneity of the prevalence and the things that we should be looking at when we're looking at the literature, when we're hearing about uh, prevalence estimates, even in the um, outside of the literature, maybe in the, in the newspapers or whatever. But the things to really pay attention to are the populations that are being looked at, um, the number of participants. Some of the studies are quite small and they may have less generalizability. The severity of initial illness can matter very much. Um, we have papers that look at mild to moderate COVID-19, but you can also be looking at hospitalized individuals, a subset of who may have been in the ICU and may be suffering from some degree of post-intensive care illness. Um, what's the evaluation time? Are they evaluating long COVID at four weeks, or are they looking at six months? These things matter and they will make it difficult to compare one study to another when they don't match. Um, most studies, when they look at outcome measures, are looking at at least one persistent system, but they may be looking at different things depending on what their interest is. Um, and so as you see on the right, the prevalence can vary significantly depending on all of these factors. And that's really the message that I'd like to drive home from this slide.
So there is some emerging data on long COVID prevalence by variant. Uh, this is a, a question, an academic question um, and a clinical question that people have. Um, and looking at data from the Zoe COVID UK symptom tracking app, um, this is a case control observational study. They looked at individuals who had symptoms lasting at least four weeks post-infection, and they looked at several thousand individuals captured during the Omicron era, this is in the UK, um, and 41,000 individuals captured during the Delta era. All of these individuals had received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, and there was no history of SARS-CoV-2 infection pre-vaccination in these individuals responding to the symptom tracking app. And what they found, um, if you look at the all age groups on the left side of the slide, um, they also stratified these data based on the time since the receipt of vaccine to account for waning immunity effectively. And what they found is that long COVID prevalence among Delta in all age groups was about 10.8% looking at the symptom tracking app. Omicron, 4.5%, so about half. Um, and that matches up with the odds ratio of 0.5. That odds ratio goes down as you move out further from the time of the vaccine receipt. And these trends persist in when you look at 18 to 59 year olds and greater than 60 year olds, although the odds ratios vary a little bit. So this is beginning to give us some idea of how long COVID prevalence may vary by, um, by variant. What I'll point out here is this is one study, so that's important to understand. Um, also, there are some caveats in this data. Um, the period of observation for Omicron um, was about four months. The period of observation for Delta was about seven because they did want to get this data published. So there was a shorter duration of um, observation for Omicron. But this is starting to give us some idea that there may be differences in the prevalence. However, what we really want to keep um, in mind is that, you know, we want to think about the totality of how this is affecting cases in general. And if many more individuals were infected during the Omicron phase, for example, this could still mean that we're adding to the numbers in terms of total prevalence of long COVID. So long COVID has multi-organ or the potential for multi-organ complications, both for COVID-19 and for long COVID. And in this review by Crook and others, um, they tried to summarize in a nice way many of the organ systems that can be affected by long COVID. Um, this may be true for some individuals, it may be true for a small fraction, ACE2 inhibitor, um, ACE2 receptors, um, that's the receptor for SARS-CoV-2, um, is present on a number of different organs. And so the virus has access to a number of different organ systems and may cause direct or indirect long-term effects. So when we look at the heart, some of the long COVID symptoms that we can see there are chest pains or palpitations. Looking at the brain, we hear a lot about brain fog or cognitive issues. Delirium, fatigue is certainly um, a really prevalent long COVID symptom. We can look at the liver, the blood vessels, endovascular effects, gastrointestinal effects, effects on the lungs, of course, in terms of persistent cough and dyspnea, et cetera. So it's really to give you a, an idea of the scope of the organ systems that can be affected in long COVID. I also wanna point out the heterogeneity of long COVID symptoms. And this is um, a paper that was in PLOS One, self-reported data on a UK online survey restricted to those 
with self-reported long COVID. You can see the number of participants there and the median duration of illness of about seven months. Only about a quarter, a little bit more than that, had lab-confirmed um, infection. And this is true of many surveys that were done, particularly earlier on in the pandemic when testing was not as widely available. I will point out that the majority of respondents to this particular survey were female, and that is something that we do see in a number of these surveys. Um, many of the individuals responding were white and of higher socioeconomic status. These are people that have access to the ability to respond to a survey, for example. And the majority of them describe their health as good or very good or excellent before COVID-19. And if we look at the symptoms that we're looking at um, as we move across this, um, this graph, we can see exhaustion really up there in terms of the complaints um, in terms of long COVID. And that can also be called fatigue. And we see this repeatedly as a really prominent long COVID symptoms. Cognitive dysfunction, I mentioned, and I won't mention everything on the list, but this is really to give you a flavor of the heterogeneity of the long COVID symptoms that we be dealing with, and individuals may be dealing with more than one symptom. Interestingly, in this study, they did compare um, percentage of individuals with non-lab confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and lab confirmed and saw that the symptoms reported as long COVID were pretty similar. Um, so that is, is interesting and encouraging in terms of self-report. Um, and it just highlights the real heterogeneity that we're dealing with um, when we look at the patient with long COVID. So what are some of the potential mechanisms for long COVID? Well, I've talked to you already about the number of organ systems that can be involved. I've talked to you already about the heterogeneity of the symptoms. So as you can imagine, there are a number of proposed mechanisms and none of this is probably one size fits all. It's an area of very active research. Um, but when we're looking at this review article from Peluso and Deeks, who've done a lot of work in the long COVID space. Um, you have an individual who has an acute COVID-19 illness. They have a number of predictors, demographic factors, um, the severity of their initial illness, social determinants of health, which we probably don't talk enough about in terms of looking at that pre-COVID or during COVID or in long COVID, but we should, um, and vaccination status. And some of those individuals will go on to full recovery. And as we've been discussing, some will go on to have long COVID. And there are a number of potential ways that that can happen. Um, proposed are viral antigen persistence um, in multiple areas of the body. We'll talk a little bit about the data that goes along with that. Systemic and tissue-specific inflammation is another potential mechanism of long COVID. Reactivation of various viruses. Here it states human herpes virus, but I'll show you some data about Epstein-Barr as well. Dysbiosis, microvascular dysfunction, and SARS-CoV-2 specific and autoreactive immune responses. And I'll show you some data related to that as well. And it's given the heterogeneity of long COVID, it's possible that for different individuals, different mechanisms may be at play. For example, in this review, um, or editorial, I should say, in Cell um, by Cow and others, they looked at a number of studies 
looking at proposed neuroinflammatory basis of COVID fog or cognitive dysfunction related to COVID, even mild COVID. And they make a number of propositions based on the emerging data that we have today. Um, there are a number of mouse studies and human studies that have implicated the role of microglia. These are the macrophages of the brain. They're really the innate immune cells of the brain and they regulate the growth of other glia in the brain. Um, and they implicate the activation of these microglia by a cytokine called CCL11, which has been shown to be elevated in some mouse models of even mild COVID-19 illness um, or SARS-CoV-2 infection and persist for some time after the initial infection is there. It's also been found in the plasma in some human studies. And they hypothesize that activation of the microglia by this particular cytokine, which has also interestingly be, been implicated in normal aging, um, in normal brain aging, may lead to loss of neurogenesis, for example, which would be on the pathway to having neurocognitive complaints down the road. Um, other cytokines have been implicated, IL-6 and TNF-alpha. We'll talk a little bit more about those in other studies, um, but they may have an effect on microglia in the subcortical white matter, leading again to microglial activation and loss of myelinated axons and neurons. So there are a number of different potential pathogenic mechanisms um, that may go along with specific symptom um, symptomatology or may cross borders in terms of symptomatology. Um, and we will we eagerly await more data on all of these potential mechanisms. One way of getting to pathogenesis and mechanism is to look at risk factors. Um, and these individuals, these um, Sue and others in a, in a paper um, that's been cited multiple times in Cell, looked at um, a number of individuals in their INCOVE cohort 209, and these were individuals with a wide range of initial COVID-19 infection, as well as um, another cohort that they used as a validation cohort called the HARV cohort, and this included individuals who were hospitalized and not hospitalized as well, and a number of healthy controls. And they did a longitudinal multi-omic study, basically, where they looked at single cell measures. They looked at um, antigenemia, whether it be related to SARS-CoV-2 or other viruses, and we'll talk about that in a second and what they found. They looked at the plasma, they looked at autoantibodies, and they looked at that in individuals who started out with an initial COVID-19 illness and then a subset of them who went on to have PASC. And what did they find? Well, they were looking for associations with long COVID and they found autoantibodies, particularly those related to type 1 interferons, were associated with long COVID, as was initial SARS-CoV-2 viremia, reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus during initial infection. They found this in 14% of their initial cohort. Um, and this is looking at reactivation by PCR methods um, at the initial time point and comorbidities, which we'll hear about as well. So these kinds of studies, these larger studies, um, more intense studies looking at multiple pathways to potential PASC and trying to find associations. And I'll just take a minute to remind you that an association does not um, mean causality, um, but it is important to have these kinds of data that are emerging that are giving us clues to what is leading potentially to PASC. 
Another way to try and get at these questions is to look at long COVID risk factors in meta-analyses. Um, and this is a survey data from a couple thousand individuals with self-reported COVID-19, and they had a longitudinal study sample, that's the LS sample, as well as about a million individuals with COVID-19 diagnostic codes in the electronic health records. And they looked at a number of factors and tried to correlate them with long COVID, um, looking at any symptoms greater than 12 weeks, and in some cases, even greater than just four weeks. Um, but what they found was the following. So any symptoms greater than 12 weeks ranged anywhere from 7.8% to 17%, a subset of that described as debilitating symptoms. And that's something also to understand is that COVID symptoms can range in severity from mild symptoms to some that are really debilitating and have incredible impact on our patient's quality of life. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about the clinical approach um, to the patient with long COVID. But what they found in this meta-analysis were a number of factors that have been brought out in other studies, um, which is why I show this to you in terms of risk factors. Female sex. And what we're looking at here are odds ratios. So greater than one would mean a higher risk of long COVID in this particular study. Female sex has come out in a number of studies as being, um, as being a risk factor for long COVID. And there are some speculation, speculative uh, questions about what could be the biological basis for that? Is it hormonal related, for example? And there's still a lot of unanswered questions there. Um, they also looked at index of multiple deprivation, which I thought was interesting and really useful. And what they did was clarify a deprivation index score for related to basically where people live and, and what their deprivation index was thought to be and found that to be higher. Um, and in terms of the um, odds ratio for developing long COVID. Also poor baseline overall health and psychological distress, BMI, greater BMI um, as well, and a number of comorbidities, including high cholesterol, asthma, et cetera. So these kinds of studies are, um, you can find throughout the literature, some will find some factors, some will find others. It depends again on which population you're looking at, what you're looking for. But I think all of these start to give us an idea of the kinds of patients that we should be looking at more closely in terms of looking for long COVID and anticipating it as well. So, I've talked a little bit about pathogenesis and risk factors. I want to talk a little bit more deeply about the immune response in long COVID. Um, and aid, aiding me in that will be this um, review article by Newell and others. And they lay out a couple of potential mechanisms that have been circulating in the literature um, and are starting to have some support. Um, one is persistent inflammation. And we talked a little bit about this and inflammatory dysregulation in the absence of viral antigen. Um, and this can lead to immune manifestations such as cytokine storm, unrestrained defector functions, autoimmunity, et cetera, eventually leading to some of the post-acute sequelae, including endothelial dysregulation, thrombotic events, neurological dysfunction, et cetera. Um, other potential immune responses leading down to immunological manifestations that, manifestations that then um, result in long COVID, persistent viral reservoir and immune activation. Now, does this mean active viral replication? 
Maybe, maybe not. Um, that is certainly an ongoing area of research. But persistent viral antigen has been noted in a number of studies in a number of different organ systems. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go through the talk. Um, that can lead to ongoing innate activation and pathogenic or exhausted effector cells, particularly T cells, um, et cetera. So these are all potential pathways that are being explored in terms of looking at how the immune response itself can lead to long COVID. So this study I thought was interesting because they focused really on some cytokines that were associated with long COVID. Um, and they recruited a large number of individuals to their study for digital health research in Germany. This is a DigiHero study. These individuals completed a basic questionnaire, a PASC-focused survey. They did some blood sampling. They had blood in their, the discovery cohort from about 318 individuals, comparing individuals with no COVID-19, individuals who had never had PASC, those who resolved, and those with ongoing PASC. And they did blood sampling, looking at cytokines, as well as looking for SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, as well as autoantibodies. And then they had a validation cohort to try and validate what they find in their discovery cohort, looking at much the same things in a comparable number of individuals. And what they found was that long COVID in this particular cohort persisted in 60% of participants up to eight months after mild COVID-19 and was associated with high levels of IL-1 beta, IL-6 and TNF-alpha levels. So we've seen IL-6 and TNF-alpha come out before in other studies. And I mentioned a study here by Peluso and others in JID that also identified IL-6 and TNF-alpha um, as cytokines that are associated with long COVID. In this particular study, they didn't find any association with autoantibodies. So different studies find different things. It depends to some extent on where they're looking and what they're looking for exactly. So I mentioned that we were going to talk a little bit about um, the data that's emerging about SARS-CoV-2 RNA and shedding for a long period of time or persistently. Um, and in this study um, that appeared in Med New York, um, they looked at individuals, um, an N of 120, um, and you can see the breakdown of men and women and the age range there. Um, and they looked at individuals who had SARS-CoV-2 RNA in their respiratory samples, and they looked at them in their fecal samples. And you can see on the graph below um, that the fecal sampling of detected SARS-CoV-2 RNA persisted for significantly longer than it did in respiratory samples, which is where we normally look clinically for SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Um, the longest recorded fecal shedding was out to 210 days, and in this study, fecal shedding was associated with some GI symptoms. And so they hypothesized that the GI tract may be a potential site of SARS-CoV-2 infection. And just to break this down a little bit more, they detected fecal SARS-CoV-2 RNA in about 49% of individuals within the first week after their initial COVID-19 illness. 12.7% continued to shed at four months. And then 4% approximately were still shedding SARS-CoV-2 RNA at seven months. Now, the implications of this shedding are not entirely clear, but it is intriguing data, um, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of it and attempts to correlate that with long COVID symptoms, particularly when we're looking at the GI tract. 
And then I wanted to talk to you about this, um, uh, this recent MedArchives paper um, that has demonstrated persistent circulating SARS-CoV-2 spike protein in plasma samples. Now this is in MedArchives, so it has not yet been peer reviewed, which I think is an important point. I'm very much looking forward to seeing this after it's been peer reviewed, but it is worth discussing because it is intriguing data. Um, they looked at a small cohort of individuals with PASC or long COVID, um, and the 37, and 26 individuals just with COVID-19 initial illness. And you can see the age breakdown there. The median was 46 in those with long COVID, 63 in those with COVID-19. Um, they didn't really match these cohorts. They're very small. Um, so there were 81% women in the long COVID cohort, 38% in the COVID-19, et cetera. So these are not matched. They really just wanted to look at these two subsets of uh, participants or and look at what they could find in terms of SARS-CoV-2 antigens. So what they looked at was the S1 subunit of spike, full length spike, and nucleocapsid. And they did that in individuals with PASC, as you can see in red, and in blue in individuals with COVID-19. And what did they find? Well, they detected full length spike at multiple time points, as you can see, that's panel B, over several months um, and in 60% of the long COVID cohort. I'll just caution you in that not every point on that graph represents a different participant. Some participants were sampled multiple times. Um, there's a dotted line that shows the lower limit of detection. That's kind of the straight line on each one of these graphs. So there's a lower limit of detection, of course, for all of these assays. And they hypothesize that SARS-CoV-2 full spike protein might be a biomarker for long COVID. That is not clear. That's a hypothesis, but this is intriguing data, and we look forward to seeing more of it. So let's turn to clinical management um, and some key points. So the diagnosis of long COVID is currently primarily based on history and physical examination. Many long COVID patients can be managed by primary care providers. These may be the initial gatekeepers for these patients who are coming to care. However, many of them, based on what I told you about the heterogeneity of the disease, the heterogeneity of the symptoms, the multiple um, organs that can be affected, may require a multidisciplinary approach to care, ideally coordinated um, by, in many cases, a primary care provider. Um, a patient-centered approach is really key to optimizing the quality of life and function for these individuals. And in the absence of specific treatments for long COVID, it's really symptom-based management. And there are many symptoms that I've mentioned previously that we do know how to manage. And the goal is to improve the quality of life for these patients. You can do objective laboratory imaging findings, of course, and it actually is very important in terms of a differential diagnosis, but it's not used as the only measure or assessment, and these may be normal, within normal limits or negative. They may not help you. Um, it doesn't negate the fact that these patients have the symptoms that they're presenting with. So healthcare professional, professionals and patients are really encouraged to set achievable goals with shared decision-making as we've talked about throughout um, and approach treatment by focusing, as I mentioned, on specific symptoms or conditions. And a comprehensive management plan is really important with the goals of improving physical health, improving mental health, as well as social well-being. 
And of course, our understanding of these post-COVID conditions remains incomplete. And having that discussion with patients about what we do know and what we don't know, I think is really important as well. So here are some potential labs and assessments that can be, that can be used, um, and they are listed here. I'm not going to go into any real detail, but the CDC has tried to give us some ideas of basic lab tests to consider, more specialized testing, et cetera. I also want to point out that there is an ICD-10 code for the post-COVID-19 condition that can be used. This was authorized some time ago. And I've already mentioned the fact that there's a clinical management differential diagnosis. Um, not everyone presenting who believes they may have long COVID um, may not have other illnesses that present with the symptoms that they're coming in with. So it's important that when we're looking at constitutional symptoms or cardiovascular symptoms, that we do what we always do, which is have a differential diagnosis for what could be going on. And I'm not going to go through all of these, but I just want to drive home that point that everything that looks like it may be associated with long COVID may not be. And so it's really important to have that differential and approach um, the patients in a systematic way. So prevention of long COVID, we talked about this already, consistent use of established tools for the, for the prevention of COVID-19, PPE, social distancing, hand hygiene, and vaccination. And then there are a number of active areas of investigation for the prevention of long COVID. Again, vaccination falls into this category as well. Early use of effective antiviral therapies. Um, how, how much can those help in terms of the prevention of long COVID down the road? And then other therapeutics with other novel mechanisms of action. I'd like to touch briefly on long COVID and COVID-19 vaccination. There have been a number of recent studies. Um, this retrospective study using the TriNetX Research Network platform looked at a number of individuals, thousands of individuals in electronic health records with COVID-19 diagnosis with three-month follow-up over the time period that you can see here. What I like about this study is that they looked at individuals who had not received any vaccination for COVID-19, those who had received vaccination for COVID-19, and then tried to match them on some key um, elements of comorbidities and demographics, et cetera. And that's really important, having the correct controls to the extent that you can do that. And what they found, not to belabor the point, was that the relative risk of a number of important outcomes was decreased in those individuals who had received vaccination when compared to their counterparts who had not. Um, importantly, mortality, an important, an important endpoint, as well as a number of new conditions since COVID-19 that are listed here that include hypertension, diabetes, thyroid disease, heart disease. And these are new conditions. They knew what individuals had at baseline. They were looking at what developed over the 90-day period. And then they also looked at some symptoms since COVID-19 in that 90-day period that we associate with long COVID and also found a decreased risk in individuals who had received prior vaccination. Another study um, looking at long COVID and COVID vaccination was an observational cohort study in Italian healthcare workers. Surveys completed over the time period and they reported long COVID as any symptom lasting more than four weeks. Um, they looked at a number of individuals um, that they tried to match on some key 
parameters um, in terms of their baseline demographics. And I'll take you to the results very quickly. Basically, if you can see my pointer here, they showed that vaccination um, in terms of individuals who had long COVID and individuals who did not have long COVID vaccination really played an important role, particularly once you started to look at vaccine doses number two and number three. If you look at the odds ratio of associations with long COVID and vaccine dose, and all of these individuals received the Pfizer vaccine, um, they had decreased risks of developing long COVID if they had a second or third dose with odds ratios of 0.25 and 0.16, respectively. We're gonna have to sort of wrap up now. Yeah, absolutely. So this is just another vaccine study looking at symptoms. Very small study, one-to-one -one matched, about 32 individuals, and they didn't find any significant difference in the mean number of PASC symptoms. This is a little bit different than the other studies because they were looking at the number of symptoms. And then another study showing that with breakthrough infection, again, individuals who had been previously vaccinated, that there was a marginal decrease in the risk of long COVID in individuals who had been previously vaccinated um, with hazard ratios that show about a 15% effect of vaccination on decreasing long COVID. So we have a number of knowledge gaps that are laid out here, variable disease definitions, ascertainment bias, lack of longitudinal studies, accounting for social determinants of health, which we need to do more of, um, adequate control groups, variants, which we're learning a little bit more about, differences across the lifespan. We don't have any biomarkers in the clinic yet, and we're still looking at effective treatments. And that brings us to this slide, which shows that there are a number of long COVID trials in the works. Um, these are largely industry studies. I also will mention the NIH Recover study, part of which is a pathology study looking at a number of important endpoints, um, such as inflammation and fibrosis and thrombosis and necrosis. So in conclusion, long COVID has a significant public health impact. The sequela protean. It has the potential to result in significant morbidity in infected individuals, may require a multidisciplinary approach to care, and we really need an improved understanding of pathogenesis, risk factors, potential mitigating factors, all important research and clinical goals. And we have significant knowledge gaps that remain. And I'll end there. Thank you very much for what was really a spectacular discussion about a difficult topic. And I'm sure there will be many more things, points to make during our roundtable discussion. Um, we have just a few minutes of Q&A before we move into the roundtable. And I would encourage anyone to put more questions in the Q&A if you have them, but I'll start with what we see here. Um, can you comment on autonomic dysfunction as a post-COVID complication? Yeah, so autonomic dysfunction has been listed as a post-COVID complication. It's something that we can assay for in the clinic. We can look at blood pressure standing and we can look at blood pressure when people are lying down. So absolutely, it has been listed as one of a number of post-COVID complications. And how does treatment of COVID with antivirals affect the incidence of 
post-COVID syndromes. Yeah, so I, I think that's an active, well, actually, I know <laughs> uh, that there's an active area of research right now. We really don't have a lot of data on this. There was a small study looking at individuals who received remdesivir. It was kind of a convenient sample that perhaps suggested that early treatment with remdesivir um, decreased the risk of long COVID, but we really need larger controlled trials to really be able to answer that question. And that's an active, and I that's kind of a pun because we're doing that in active, um, but that's an active area of research. <laughs> I think that's why they called it active. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so how about um, in, uh, specifically related to fatigue as a major feature of long COVID. Is there any role in checking lactic acid levels or other mar markers of mitochondrial dysfunction? Has that been evaluated? I don't personally know of any specific data looking at that, but what I will say is that, and that was part of the point of my differential diagnosis slide, is that um, when someone comes in with fatigue, we shouldn't just assume that we can chalk that up to long COVID if they've had a COVID infection prior. So you would work up fatigue the way you would work up fatigue and really let the symptomatology and your physical exam guide you on that. Great. Um, and uh, one of our audience members thanks you for your excellent talk, but asks whether you can speak to how post-COVID syndromes fit into the larger context of post-infectious syndromes. How much do you think is specific to SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, it's a really good question. And researchers are looking at that in particular, comparing historical data related to um, flu, for example. Um, we know that post-infectious conditions are not new to COVID, but I think the scale and the scope really is new for us. Um, so that needs to be defined further, but it's certainly not a unique um, phenomenon. Um, one more question. Are viral sanctuaries now being implicated in the pathogenesis of long COVID? Yeah, so I touched on that a little bit, and I think that's, an, I know that's an active area of research. Again, we know that we can find um, SARS-CoV-2 antigens in various organs of the body. The question is how much of this is replication competent, if any, um, as we go out further from the time of the initial illness. So yes, absolutely. Um, there have been autopsy studies that have found antigens throughout the body, including in the brain. So it's an active area of research. I know this has come up uh, very early on in the pandemic with people who had persistent shedding for long periods of time after recovery. And there's always been the question about whether this is replicating virus or persistent detection of RNA uh, in people who've recovered. Exactly. <clears throat> um, there's another question about the association with prior diagnosis of depression with any specific symptoms of long COVID. Um, I don't know that the prior diagnosis of depression has been linked to any particular long COVID symptom, but prior diagnosis of depression and anxiety in some studies um, has been associated um, with long COVID. Again, associations and causality are two different things. And you can imagine that 
Um, long COVID is a distressing illness, um, particularly because there's so little that is known about it. Um, so for sure, in some studies, depression and anxiety have been linked, and I think I showed you one today, to um, long COVID in terms of a correlative um, examination. But in terms of a causality, in terms of looking at mechanisms of depression, I'm not familiar with that research. And I, I think for a lot of us diagnostically, it's particularly with people who've recovered from severe COVID following ICU admission and mechanical right. ventilation, it's very hard to separate what's the post-ICU, post-mechanical ventilation syndrome and how much is attributed to COVID. So I guess it's kind of analogous to the previous question. How do we distinguish some of these things that may have not much to do with COVID, but more to do with the underlying uh, condition of the patient and comorbidities? So, yeah, it's a really difficult question. And I think that one of the approaches is taking that symptom based approach, right? No matter how you're coming to your, your presenting symptoms if we address them, we can, um, we can improve quality of life. So certainly for individuals coming out of the ICU, that is going to, you know, they've, they've lost a lot of their muscle tone, et cetera. There are a lot of things going on there that we see with anyone coming out of the ICU, not particularly related to COVID. So teasing those things apart is very difficult, but focusing on the symptoms um, of, your, of your patient in front of you, I think is a, is a good way to start. Great. Well, thank you again for what was really an elegant tour de force around long COVID. Um, I think the summary is that we have a lot to learn and there are huge gaps in our knowledge base about what to do with this particular complication of COVID. So that will segue us into our roundtable discussion, which